like everything, like the grass, the animals, you got to be in sync with Mother Nature. You know, you can fight Mother Nature and you can win some wars, but she's going to win the, you can win a few battles, but she's going to win the war. <laughs> yeah, she's yeah. always going yeah, to have the last word. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the Soil Health Labs Growing Resilience Podcast, engaging ranchers, farmers, and researchers in the pursuit of healthy functioning soils. Welcome back to another episode in the Growing Resilience Podcast. I am Barrett Self. And I'm Buzz Clute. And today we've got another Zoom interview slash conversation between Buzz and Chamberlain, South Dakota producer Larry Wagner. Yep, Larry um, has been there for pretty much, I, th I think he grew up on, on that particular operation. Um, he's on the board of directors. I believe he's the secretary of the South Dakota Grassland Coalition. Um, and I, I guess what makes Larry unique is they started rotational grazing in the 90s. Um, I believe before then, um, you know, his dad was a, a row crop farmer like so many people around them. And corn rootworm came in and his dad didn't want to deal with quite a lot of that, uh, the, the stuff that would go along with that. So they just converted everything or, or a lot of their land to, to grassland. So uh, Larry talks about that, um, and um, I think one of the things he was known for was uh, swath grazing. So, um, and then, uh, I'm not, I don't want to, uh, Larry doesn't like to toot his own horn, but I, I think we want to we wanna let him do that. Toot the, for him, <laughs> Toot for him. The, the one thing that was really interesting, he's worked with the Audemont Society, and because his land's been in rangeland for so long i guess it's uh mixed grass prairie sort of there in in the missouri sort of in the middle of the state um uh, the, the guys came out there and did a bird count and i think they found 32 prairie species out there so when you're seeing that many that that much of a diversity of birds i think you're doing something right so you'll yeah. you'll hear that uh, from larry um and, uh, you know, hopefully uh, uh, folks in that part of the world can get to visit with Larry and uh, see, see his operation. I, I don't know how much time he has, but I think that would be really worthwhile for the, the, the middle of the state. Yeah, as with most of these producers that we talk to, very open to sharing and helping other producers in the community, uh, sharing knowledge, wisdom, and just talking about what works and what doesn't. Yeah, yeah, and I think that just goes back down to pure passion. Uh, so Larry understands his system. He has a very um, experiential understanding of the system and how the soils and the grasses and the animals work together. Yes, he does. Well, we'll get out of the way and let you guys enjoy this episode. Larry Wagner, it's just really nice to have you on uh, on board and to, to talk to us in the Growing Resilience podcast. Uh, such a pleasure to to have you and, and thanks for taking the time and effort to to do this with us. This uh, technically wasn't all that easy. <laughs> um, Larry, tell us a little bit about your your story. I'm living on on the ranch that I grew up on. 
for several years, I run a trucking business and then started back on the ranch. And that's when I got involved with the rotational grazing. That was a, that was like in the early nineties. That was a new thing when there was, you know, it was just people were just talking about it. It was, it was really new. Uh, I'm going to say one of the advantages I had when I started was that I had, my dad had passed away by then and I didn't, didn't have anybody saying, well, you got to do this. You got to do that. Uh, that's one thing I see so much of the time. Well, you probably got three generations on the ranch and and so you got some that are going well i don't you know i i i put this ranch all together and i done this and i done that it's really hard for the young person to try something new and so that was my big advantage i didn't have anybody telling me well you got to do this this is how you got to do it and so that lent to doing the rotational grazing, get started in that, the fencing and all that kind of stuff. And uh, did you start with uh, a very small amount of fence, you know, like just dividing into two pastures or did you go the whole hog with that, Larry? Uh, probably started out, I'm gonna say kind of in the middle, it divided it up fairly well. And then of course divided it more as time went on, but, uh, yeah, started out small because of getting the fence structure and stuff. And, and, and of course, at that time, there wasn't the, oh, what am I going to say, electric fence stuff available, and the quality wasn't as good. So there was probably, I'm going to say, my biggest mistake was I put in too much permanent fence. And because I don't give you the flexibility like you might have that, uh, it's whether this year I need smaller paddocks or I might need bigger ones or any of that kind of stuff. So you don't have the flexibility. And that was the thing at that time. Well, you just put a permanent fence in. Yeah. Make everyone just exactly the same size. <laughs> yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Okay. And um, so that was uh, in the early 90s. I guess there wasn't that much information around um so there were a few innovative people doing it but but so so you you were having to evaluate sort of in some cases sort of get information from uh very few sources but but then you didn't have multiple generations telling you what what to do and what not to do right the information thing was probably the uh probably the big thing but did well seek out the people that you never know if it's right, but the people you think that are right, a lot of NRCS people and people like that that had had worked on these kind of things and got information from them. And I was really lucky that everybody I got information from was knew what they were talking about and it was really a big help. Okay, that's that's pretty cool. Um can you tell us about a bit about your operation where you are now because well, well let me go back one second it looks like you've also converted a lot of cropland back into rangeland is that correct that is correct and even my dad did that way back in the late 50s 
he was one of the first people that had corn rootworm. And it started out that uh, it looked like he was in a hurry when he was cultivating, turned too quick, and and it started on the end. And, and by fall, I mean, it, other people then had it, and, and it was a bad deal. And, and so, well, you're going to have to use this insecticide and all this stuff. And my dad said, no, he said, I ain't messing with that poison. He said, he said, we're going to plant this all back to grass. And of course, at that time, uh, there wasn't the knowledge on the grass. So it was all planted back to warm season grass, or I mean, cool season grass. And of course, you can only have so much of that. So I went back and I broke some of that and then planted a, a, quite a bit of, of warm season grass, native type grasses. Yeah, I see you rely quite a bit on big blue stem for your warm seasons. Big blue stems. What I really like for combination is big blue stem, uh, Indian grass, and side oats. Okay, all right, and they're all they're all there. I curious. Then, yeah, are you? And are then, you, go ahead. And then, after you have that well established, go in and probably I like to plant some sage or milk vetch in there for legume with it. I, I I saw that. Is that a native species? Um, yeah, um, I, I saw you had uh, spoke. That's the first time I've heard of that milk patch. Just say it, it's a, a, a sci. Uh, what kind of a milk patch is it? Sicer, C-I-C-E-R. Sicer milk patch. Yes, I saw that you did that with your swath grazing as well. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. 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 Um, one thing I and where I had it in my swath grazing, what I had done, that was a field of intermediate, and it got. I don't know if you're familiar with how it gets after ten or fifteen years, it gets unproductive. It's, and I was looking at it, and I wasn't getting much off it, so I was going to have to go in there and break it up. But instead of going to all that expense, I went in there and I just uh, interceded this sizer milk vetch, and that's been. I'm going to say 10 to 15 years ago, and, and it's still producing very well by planting that in there. Yeah, and so this, the, this, is the size of milk batch coming back every year, or are you planting it every year as well? No, it comes back every year. It's a perennial. Perfect. Uh, what, one thing I like about it, it's, I call it an opportunist. It's, it's got to have, what it likes is bare ground. And if you've got bare spots, that's where it'll show up and it'll take care of all your bare ground. So you always got good ground cover. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, well that, yeah, I, I saw that. Up there, go ahead. There's another thing about it. I know a guy that he had went and planted his warm season grass and planted his sizer milk vetch with it. And he didn't wind up with any grass because the sizer milk vetch just took over. So you got to get your warm season grass established and then go in and you don't take very much i mean pound or two you you can either intercede it i've got i've done some things of, of just actually just scattering it on the ground and gotcha gotcha yeah well, well larry can you tell us about the operation now as it stands you know where are you located how big is it what are you what's your main business what, what's your business uh we're 
20 miles southeast of Chamberlain, pretty much south, uh, running 175 uh, cows, mother cows, oh, probably 25 yearlings that we'll use. Then we're selling grass-fed beef and, and fattening them for grass-fed and, and, and then selling feeder calves off in the spring because I rent some ground from the state and I so I get on that in the spring graze off all the warm season form or I mean the cool season off before the warm season starts and then then I sell the okay feeder cattle yeah yeah so you're you're fattening up with that that cool season are you yeah yeah okay yeah and and that cool season is is going to be um mainly uh, the the um the invasive species that the crested wheatgrass and the uh, um and the our main species is brome smooth brome here um, yeah um you know i so many people say well they don't like smooth brome and it's an invasive and all them things and it, to me it's not it, it's all management uh people people don't graze that brome as soon as they should you need to be out there really early in the spring because it's going to come so fast and so uh to me it's just like a double crop i can i can get the smooth brome off and in time if you're if you're out there early enough and then then your natives will come and you so you, you get that much longer grazing season right but it, it's the, the critical thing on that buzz is it's getting started early enough on it Okay, yeah, yeah. I, kn I know um, kind of East Rivers, often the guys are busy planting. And so by the time the cows get in, it's sort of belly high. So, yeah, so, yeah just explain to me uh, just a little tangent here. You're, you're going to graze your smooth brown down. You're opening up the canopy then for other species to come through. Is that correct? That's correct. I like to really graze it down to is a grazing person with that would look at that says well you graze that too much well it don't seem to hurt that smooth roman like you say it opens up the canopy and then uh you'll never i guess i haven't seen that it's ever affected my warm season grass oh really okay yeah yeah okay that's that's interesting of course there there's there are two different levels to me there's your brome grass is not a deep rooted plant, so it's got to use the moisture right on the top. Whereas your warm season grasses are really, you know, deep rooted, so they're in a different plane of moisture. Correct. Yeah, and so that's why your brome sort of gives out in in basically gives out in the beginning of June or middle of June. Is that right? About middle of June. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Well, um, Larry. <laughs> I saw a couple of other things about your operation that fascinated me. What would you say makes your operation unique? What distinguishes you from operations around you? Probably the operations around me. I'm in, in a lot of crop country. So uh, I'm the only, probably the only one around that's just doing grass. I mean, don't have, I don't have any crop. I don't know as if I'd ever do that again, is plant all grass. And the reason of that being, 
Buzz, I've done that before we had cover crop, and I think there's a great place for cover crop in the great whole if your whole grazing picture. And I think you need cover crop in there. And so if I was going to do it again, I, I think I would leave some uh, and, and so I could plant cover crops, but, you know, just extend, have more grazing time. Yeah. 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 Oh, that, okay. That's, that's interesting. Yeah. I guess, um, you know, one of the biggest re reasons or biggest things that threaten, you know, the native rangelands has been cropland conversion and you kind of went the other way. So I was curious, you know, that must, you saw the financial motivation to do that and it, it, it's paid for you. How has it done that for you, Larry? It, it, your cost operation is so much less. It ain't um, for cropping. You have so much input cost. Yeah. Uh, seed, fertilizer, equipment and stuff. You know, with livestock and, and the grass, you can keep that a lot less, yeah, to make it profitable. Yeah, yeah. Now, you've also, on the other side, it seems like you do a lot of marketing for grass-fed. Uh, so, you're in a sense, you're a price maker as well. Do you, you're able to sell your grass-fed beef, grass-fed, grass-finished beef uh, at, a, at a premium as well? Somewhat of a premium. It's tough here to do it because uh, I've never tried to do the internet marketing, which um, I think if you really want to do it on a, very much of a scale, you would need to do that. So it's it's tough to compete against the, the grain-fed market locally. Okay. To do that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But so you're basically competing on the basis of cost then? Right. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. do have some people that that are health conscious and want nothing but grass, which of course helps a lot. Yeah. So can people come to directly to you? Is is there a mechanism for people to come directly to you to, for that, or do you have to sell it as grass fed to sort of a, a middleman? No, I I sell direct. Okay. They come right to me. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's nice. That's nice. Well, one of the other things um, I also saw was that you run an Audubon certified conservation ranch. Um, and I'd never heard about the Audubon's involvement in rangeland management until I met Josh Leifers. So I was curious as to how you got into that and what's that story? Uh, I got in, into it through Josh or somebody from the Audubon comes out and they look at your ranch they count you know the species of grass they do bird counts i know like in our area josh that does it said i was probably the highest one had like 32 different kinds of birds on the ranch so then they have a like what they call an audit every year to make sure that everything is right but it's it's um you're doing things with your grass to keep birds all kinds of birds there Okay. Well, well, how do you do that? So I, I, I guess the, the it it had a management plan that says you're managing for diverse vegetation, for those grassland dependent birds, and then you're also maintaining open grasslands. How are you doing that? Uh, you're uh, you're obviously using the cows as tools, right? Uh, 
it causes tools. And what I have noticed is if you're managing your grass right for your cows, it's basically right for everything. It's right for the birds. It's right for all kinds of wildlife. They just all fit together. Right, right, right. Yeah. And and when you're talking about managing your grass, sort of you pay attention. Give me an idea of, you know, how long you're going to be grazing at, at what time and how to, when you're resting. Are you moving seasons? I'd be curious to see that pattern or do you have a pattern that you use? I, I really don't. I I do more by just watching the grass uh, because you got variations of moisture, temperature. How well is the grass growing? How fast do I need to be moving? And them kind of things. So it, it's kind of to me, it's almost uh, every day or every other day for sure. You, you need to be checking on your grass to see where you're at to to get the optimum out of your grass. Okay. Okay. So essentially, I guess that label would be adaptive grazing management. You're always adapting to what you've got, and is that right? Correct? Yeah. Yeah. And are you are, do, are you able to graze at, um, year round, or is, are there times when you have to feed hay? Uh, I, I've been feeding hay in the winter. I I used to do swath grazing, and I guess I've just got old and lazy and quit doing it. But that that is really a great thing to do. And 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 why I say that, Buzz? Do you know what I mean by swath grazing? Yes, I, I, I've actually seen a little bit of it, yes. So what did you see what, when they were swath grazing? What were they using? Well, I, I didn't see the machines, but essentially okay. you're creating windrows, and then uh, basically you're able to then fence um, one windrow to the next, and then they're able to go in and graze. And then the trampling and the urine and the manure and everything else gets that windrow sort of trampled into the ground and sort of fertilizes your system. Right. And I was doing that. I was planning like a cane sorghum stuff to do it. But then I, that was, get, you know, that was a cost every year and stuff. So then I went to just doing grass, swath grazing grass and, and harvesting my, putting it in the windrows like in end of june first of july so the feed value was there and i was doing it with grass and it sure worked good oh my goodness so just uh your regular grass out in the pasture yeah 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 oh my goodness okay i i didn't realize that yeah so now, yeah, yeah go ahead you was talking about the size milk but and that's what i was doing i was doing that some of the fields that had intermediate and sizer milk vetch Okay. My swath grazing. Yeah. So in, define intermediate for me, Larry. Uh, intermediate wheat grass. Intermediate wheat grass. Okay. The yeah. wheat grass. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's that's interesting. Yeah. So would uh, so it would be a cool season. So would that? Uh, I guess once it it snows that there there's no there's no grazing uh, there's no growth at all. It's all going to be in that swath. There, but you know that was the thing you had to. What I always did, or when I started out doing that, I would bail a windrow or two to get an idea of of how much grass I had there, for, you know, production, 
and then how much I needed, how many windrows a day I needed to feed my cows. Yeah. And uh, that's how I'd, how I'd done that. But then there was the other thing, and, of course, that depended on our rainfall, of how much you had in between the windrows, how much regrowth you had. And some years you had quite a bit, so you had to take that into consideration, too. Right. And, um, you know, it depended. If you got a lot of snow, they didn't get much of that, but they was if there wasn't a lot of snow, they'd dig a lot of that out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, um, yeah, that's, uh, that, that, I, I just listened to your, your uh, talk about, you know, some of the difficulties in the winter where the snow gets too high and you've got to have two electrical fences and dealing with uh, having to put the posts in on frozen ground. That's just something I'm not familiar with. So. Yeah. Um, but you made it work and, and it was really good for you. It was good for the land as well, was it? It was great for the land because like you said earlier about the urine and the manure out there, uh, you're not mining it and hauling it off, but it just stays right there. Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, there's there, yep. there's some, some tricks to doing that that I had learned, like the electric fence thing. Sometimes when it would get to be spring and, and get, or if you hit a warm spell, you couldn't move your fence. I was always, where I was, I most of the time moved like two windrows. Well, sometimes you had to move it twice a day because you had to make like a fence line, what I call a fence line feed bunk. You had to put the fence right up to the windrow so they couldn't get on it with their muddy feet. So they had to reach under it to otherwise they would just run up and down it and then it was ruined and that was it. So it was some like everything you do, there's learning curves to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it sounds like it worked quite well for you. Um. <laughs> Larry, just talking about uh, your rangeland health, uh, you're 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 obviously checking on your pasture and the, the amount there is. Uh, is rangeland health, you know, are you aware of rangeland health? Is that something you check often as well? And how do you how would you look for that? How how would you go about that? Uh, yes, because rangeland health is really important because it, it's not only the rangeland health that goes back to our livestock health and if the, if the range is healthy you're going to have healthy livestock um i always so you got to have to me you you know you can't you got to leave at least half and so that all gets on the ground to go you know go back into the ground have ground cover i'm really big on ground cover so your ground don't get hot because that kills all your microbes and stuff if you get too hot and then it you know makes your organic matter and holds your moisture to you know and in south dakota other than last year 2019 i should say uh moisture's always seemed like on the scarce side for us and so you want to be able to conserve all you can of it yeah and so if you got a good uh, ground cover, really helps for lose, so you don't lose your moisture. Yeah, yeah. And are you are you looking for species as well, diversity of species, or are you only interested in one or two? How does that work? 
grasses, oh. that kind of thing. I'm always looking for diversity. <clears throat> Excuse me. And what I've noticed is it has a lot to do with moisture. And, and you'll see some years all of a sudden, well, I never seen that species out here. Well, it was either wet or it was dry. And so some new species so, showed up. Uh, say if it was dry, you see it for a year or two, then it gets wet. Well, that one seemed to disappear, but then there's another new one. And and what I've noticed is, is your soil health gets healthier. You, you see these different species coming and going, but they're they're still a good species because they're all good good for the soil. Yeah. We'd like to briefly interrupt this episode with a word from our sponsor, the Natural Resources Conservation Service. Did you know that the NRCS offers free one-on-one consultation on your operation? Give your local NRCS office a call or for more information, visit the link in the show notes of this episode. And now, back to the podcast. Well, talking about soil health, um, what have you seen in your soil health? Um, have you seen changes? How do you how do you look at your soil health? Do you go out with a shovel? Do you do infiltrometer tests? What's your interest in that? Uh, mainly with a shovel, and you know, see what it's looking like. Do some infiltration checks too. But but a lot of it I just do with a shovel okay. in different spots and see what it's like. Yeah. So so what are you checking for there, Larry? They say your ground should look like cottage cheese. That's the and you know, and, and so see if that soil is getting like cottage cheese or if it's just one hard lump. So yeah. you know, if you have the one hard lump, you ain't gonna get much water infiltration. So you're seeing that cottage cheese effect, that soil structure with lots of soil pores. You're seeing that all over the show. Yes. Yeah. You know, with all your roots in there and stuff, uh, yeah. Yeah, so you've got a live root, basically with with uh, grass you've got and forbs, you've got live roots in the soil year round. Do you see a lot of earthworms? Right, I have a lot of earthworms. They're, they're tunneling and stuff, making waterways all the time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, how about dung beetles? Do you, do you see a lot of those? Just see more and more of them all the time. So, so do you think uh, over time, um, you know, you have you seen improvements in your soil health that sort of line up with improvements in your pasture? Right. It all they all fit together. It, it uh, you know, quit the chemical things like the porons and that increases your dung beetles. Well, that increases your soil health. And I mean, it's just such a, I guess I call it a circle, how yep. that stuff all fits together. You do one improvement, but yet you're improving a lot of other things that you don't. You, you started out with you're going to improve one thing, but then in the end, it improves a lot of things. So it's uh, it's unintended benefits unintended positive consequences yeah yeah well i guess the fact that josh counted 32 birds on your land you know uh, 
I guess the bird species, you know, are kind of at a very high up on that food chain, which is a really good indicator that good things are happening on your land. So, right, yeah, is the more birds you get, you're being it's the ability to sustain them, so that yeah, that they're there and stay there. Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's a good measure an indicator a way to measure that it that the grass is in good shape yeah 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 well you did mention uh, a drought larry or you know it looks like we're in for a very dry 2021 i just looked at the drought monitor for two weeks in a row i don't know what it is this week but it, it looks like it's going to be very dry how 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 do you prepare for your drought? Um, uh, Run some the yearlings. You know, if, if it has to be, they can always be sold. Okay. Yeah. Do you have a drought management plan that you kind of keep active or that you developed at some stage or the other? It's kind of a plan in my head. You know, it's, you got, first thing goes is the yearlings, and then you always got, to me, I always got older cows. Well, if it gets bad, I can always sell them. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah, and it that's is that quite quite difficult sometimes to do. It's well, yes, it's difficult, but it's something that just has to be done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you yeah. um, you can sacrifice a few heads so you keep the rest of them. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you find that your land? As it's as the soil health has grown, do you find that your land has become more resilient to things like drought and and wet weather? How, how have, have what have you noticed? Are there signs that you've noticed um, in your land that that it has become more resilient? Have your soil in good condition so that when you have your really wet years, that you you can store that water instead of just having it run off. Um, makes a lot of difference. You can get through a really bad year pretty well. It, it makes that much difference. It, yeah. Yeah. So we're we're going to have a dry year. Sounds like though that you've been preparing this for a long for for this for a long time, and so it doesn't kind of catch you off guard. Right, because you know here in South Dakota. <laughs> like they always say, we're two weeks away from a drought, and so. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, you got to be prepared for it. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, Larry, just a couple of I, I, I had a few more questions. Are you're involved in the South Dakota Grassland Coalition? Is that correct? Are you still that's, an active board member? Yeah, I'm active board. I'm the secretary for the. Okay, bless bless your heart for. That that sounds like a that sounds like a lot of work. Um, how how is the SD Grassland Coalition involved in kind of spreading? What do you guys talk about? What what are the things that are really important to South Dakota Grassland Coalition? Keeping the grass on the ground, keeping showing people the advantages of having grass, uh, and what can be done with grass. Uh, you know your clean air clean water and and that kind of stuff and and we put on uh, grazing schools 
we have two of them every year, which uh, people come to and it, you know, it, it tells them how to go about grazing, uh, stalking rates and things like that. Yeah, yeah. And and then we have whole meetings during the year. We we put we sponsor on on different things. Our last year we had one on calving in May and June and yeah just a lot of put out a lot of information to make running the running cattle keeping grass more profitable for operators yeah yeah I read a an SDSU article and I'm trying to sort of wrap my head around this um it said about uh, at least 50% of the grasslands in the state are continuously grazed. Um, uh, how how does one reach rich folks like that? Because I noticed that sort of rotational adoption has also slowed down. So that would, that's something that really interests us. How how does one reach out? To, you know, what what are those barriers that are going on there? If you could speak to that. It's really hard to reach them, and probably the the best way to reach them if you can show economics. It always seems like an agriculture war is short of money, right? And so, so if you know if you can show people that that this is more profitable, and there's ways to make it more profitable, that's probably the easiest way to reach them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Profitability and 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 labor. That's probably the two things to get their attention yeah yeah i i uh, i actually saw one of the reasons why a lot of guys don't adopt rotational grazing is because of a lack of water and then the the labor issue and um i, I was i was curious about what your thoughts were because the, the guys who are doing it that doesn't seem to be a problem for them so <laughs> how do you overcome that barrier <laughs> it, it, it's really tough um, you know, it's like a lot of things. Until you do it, you the ease of doing it, you don't really know it till you till you get into it. It's you know, it's like the May June cabin. Uh, people don't realize how much less work that is than doing it in March and April. Well, it, I being a warm-blooded creature, I would imagine it's a lot less cold. Right. <laughs> and, and you know, my, my saying always is, well, how many fawns do you have? Uh, and, uh, well, of course, like in our country, fawns are born in, in June. That's Mother Nature. And I said, it's, it's just like, like everything, like the grass, the animals. Uh, you got to be in sync with Mother Nature. You know, you can fight Mother Nature and you can win some wars, but she's going to win the. You can win a few battles, but she's going to win the war. <laughs> yeah, she's always gonna, yeah, she's always going to have the last word. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> For me, it's it's the work. Uh, it takes so much of the work out of it. You know, I've had guys say, "Well, I, I got to sell my cows. I'm getting too old." And I said, "I don't know what you're talking about. I'm older than you are," but. It's it's just the we've always calved in 
March and April, and uh, we just can't change. That's just the only thing we can do. And there's, there's, you know, and and that's hard to get a paradigm shift. You know, that a lot of that goes back to we talked about earlier about preconceptions of well, I've always done this, and I'm not going to change. Yeah, yeah, that's tough to do. Yeah, I I spoke to Janita Qualm from Pierre, and she talked about that quite quite extensively. There are a lot of things. Well, it's Thanksgiving, we have to start feeding hay. It's February, we have to be calving. And so changing those paradigms can be tough. Well, I think, you know, um, uh, your your mission is is fantastic, and, and hopefully we can come alongside you and, and help. And, and uh, certainly we, we, we could always use help in in getting the message across. So, yeah, I, I was curious. You also mentioned you have a very good relationship with the NRCS. Um, uh, you, you did mention that earlier. Would you mind just kind of telling us about that? Because that seems to be a free resource that's not always um, taken advantage of. Right. And got a good, real, real good relationship with the NRCS. Working with them, see what what the programs are it's like all things you got to have adaptability and so see what their programs are uh, a lot of that depends on your the biggest thing to me is we've been real fortunate to have good uh our or our district conservation has always been really good and so there's a lot of help with the fencing with the water uh a lot of that stuff, getting ideas how it's done, uh, help with cost of that. And so, yes, it's been really helpful to me okay. to be working with the NRCS. Your DC, is that still Stacy Turgeon? Uh, no, it's not. She has changed jobs. She's still here. Okay. Uh, our, our new one is Rachel Fry. Rachel Fry, okay, yeah, I haven't met her yet. Had a lot of fun with Stacy. She was running around burying underwear in different parts of the land. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she was at my place. <laughs> burying underwear? Yeah. So not only do they, uh, does NRCS supply you with free service, but they bury underwear in your land as well, just for fun, right? Well, see, that has to do with, uh, you don't want to find your underwear when you get done because that is the microbes will have eaten that underwear up. And so, yeah. 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 Well, it's a, it's a terrific, it's a tif- terrific demonstration on, uh, you know, how microbial the soils are. I'm going to ask you um, a couple of sort of quick questions. We're just experimenting with these, Larry, but um, uh, so these these will be quick questions and and pretty much free form. I I hope I uh, I hope uh, I don't catch you off guard too much. But what would you say when the light bulb went on for you? What what was one of your biggest light bulb moments? I guess probably seeing how well rotational grazing, how you increased your grass production by doing it when you was used to season long grazing and how much good it did rest did and that i guess that was probably probably one of my biggest ones when it first started out yeah yeah that that's that sounds good yeah it seems like double treble or even quadruple production is 
Is that not that, that's not out out of the question? Is that Larry? No, it's not. It's it it sure can be achieved. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. More stocking rate, longer grazing time. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um. Here's another one. <laughs> what what surprised me most most about soil health on grassland? I think probably the most was how easy it is to achieve better soil uh, with with dung beetles, uh, leaving your grass that is left and stuff like uh, to increase your organic matter that it, it is very easily easy to do on, on grasslands. So that surprised you, Larry? Uh, right. How how what a change you can make? Yeah. How yeah. E how easy and how fast? Yeah. Were you told that you couldn't do make those changes so quickly before? No, I guess I wasn't because you know it was one of them things. The soil health in in the grasslands kind of come along. Yeah afterwards that hasn't been a real big thing it's it's uh, it's got that way now but i mean we had we was doing our rotational grazing and stuff and we were building that soil and not realizing it or or i think that's another reason where our production is coming from because we've improved the soil and 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 that was really where where increased production was coming from gotcha gotcha all right. What do you think the biggest misconception of, of grazing in, in grazing in these perennial systems is, Larry? Um, not not realizing the advantage of uh, yeah the advantage and benefits of rotational grazing uh, of missing out on on how much they could be producing and then of course affecting their bottom line. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right, so what would you recommend to someone who wanted to start out with healthier systems? Uh, if they were continuous grazers, what would you recommend? Where? What, what are the first steps you'd recommend for a continuous grazer to start out? I guess I would recommend to go to the NRCS, learn what, you know, I'm kind of talking a big area probably not just locally find out what your native grasses are uh learn what you got for grass and what it would take if you're missing some of your native grasses what it would take to get them back because that's going to be your first step is is, is going to be your production of your grass to be a grazer yeah so those native grasses are going to be key especially in the in the summer grazing is that correct that's correct yeah yeah you know and i'm not familiar with like where you're at i'm sure there's native grasses for uh winter grazing or, or whatever you're grazing yeah. What, yeah what are what are the native ones and and you know they're the ones that'll be there for you when it gets tough where a lot of your introduced ones won't. They'll yeah, yeah. Well, we have, uh, you know, we we've we've got rid of a lot of our native grasses, and so there's a lot of Bermuda grass in the summer, and then uh, uh, stuff like fescue and a little bit of orchard grass. So 
a lot of turf grasses and we're going to have to go back to natives as well. So it's it's very different for us and I, you know, it's it's wonderful to be out in the prairies with you guys and see all, all that diversity. Um, Larry, what's the one thing you think that worked the best for you in the last five, 10 years of your of your system? Is there anything that you would say really worked well for you? I'm going to say probably one of the, and it's probably been longer than that now, was probably going to uh, May-June cabin. Why was that? Cut down on the work. It's amazing what, how many cows one person can calve out with without a lot of work. Yeah. And 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 a and a lot of lot less expense because you don't have all the overhead in buildings and equipment and stuff to, when it's cold and snowy and muddy and. Gotcha. I I never actually considered the labor implications of calving later on in the year. So that's oh that's that's real interesting. And then one last question, Larry. Uh, something you'd still like to do more of or do differently would be what? If I was going to do something different, I would be back to what we talked about earlier, having uh, cover crops. Because I think they're really important. You know, when they first come out with these cover crops and, and on the EQIP program, uh, it was going to, you know, they did pay for cover crops. And I was, at first, that really bothered me. The NRCS was doing that. And I said, well, that's taking money away from our fencing and our and, and pipelines and that kind of stuff. And then I got to thinking about that. And I said, well, to myself, that's a really great deal because, like in our area, so we get to about 1st of September and we're out of grass. Well, what do all the farmers do? They leave the cow in the pasture because there's nowhere, they got no place to put her. So then she's there till like six weeks longer than she should be. By then we've probably got some corn picks so we can put her on corn stalks. Well, with the cover crop, they it's about, or you can have it ready then, put, put them in there and get them off that pasture and don't overgraze that pasture for an extra six weeks. It, they're just storing them there, but it's 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 hard on the grass. And yeah. so with that, they go to the cover crop, and it's good for the cattle. It's good for the ground. It's it's a win-win deal. Yeah, and it's good for the economics of the producer as well. I'm assuming. Yep. Yeah, because that they grow pretty darn quickly, don't they? Yeah. Yeah. Where, where, where would you, if you had, would you have to break ground, or would you just run the grain drill over native prairie? Forgive my ignorance on that. How how would you do that with cover crops? Cover crops usually have to be into um, some farmed land that was some ground. ground. Yeah. yeah, like that place where you uh, originally were doing the um, the swath grazing before you went to grass. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. When I was doing the pearl millet stuff, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right, Larry, I, I I have run out of questions over here. I, I wanted to ask, is there something else that I needed to ask you or something else you wanted to tell me that you thought was important to people um, in, in the grasslands and in farmlands who are interested in the grazing? I guess probably my thing is I don't, I just think that our grass is, is 
so important to to everybody and, and by that i mean uh, people in town as well as is farmers and ranchers that, that there's so many benefits with our air and our water and that is something i think that we really need to be we really need to be taking as good a care of that as we possibly can absolutely yeah yeah and um yeah you know i think um i guess one of the things also that i realized was the role of these working you know this patchwork of working farm and ranch lands that you know that's gonna that's that's keeping this this whole range ecosystem together that's amazing well um just getting to sort of the last thing uh, larry um in terms of if folks wanted to uh to get a hold of you maybe in your role as secretary of the grasslands coalition or just to talk to you about your operation is there a way folks can get hold of you larry yes they can do you have my phone number i do i do yes that or my email yeah yeah okay e either one that is that is another thing that the grassland has we have a it's on our website okay. uh, sdgrass.org yes and on there we have a uh, a mentor list if you're wanting to know about doing different things and there's uh um say fencing or, or pipelines or whatever and then there will be a list of names under that and and them are people not just on the board them are members and people that have had uh you know probably some of the first people that ever started doing that so that they have a lot of experience in fence building pipelines uh uh later calving uh, all whatever your uh, how to plant grass what kind of grass to plant there's all these things there's these, uh we got this mentor list that you can get a hold of okay well i i knew that there was a mentor list i didn't realize that the mentor list was specific to different uh, to different aspects that's that's really useful i'm gonna go have a look at that myself and we might just put it in the show notes as well so that people can go there yeah it's it, like i said it's really helpful well larry um i'm i'm about done with questions um any last words before we leave well i'm really glad to be doing this because i uh just like to get the word out any way i can about grass to, to keep it yeah okay and well hopefully you and i also bump uh, uh, bump into each other when we're back in South Dakota again. I'd love to do a pasture walk on your land. Be glad to have you. Well, thank you so much. Larry Wagner uh, from Chamberlain, South Dakota. Thank you so much. Um, it's just been such a pleasure to talk to you. Same here. Well, Buzz, as Larry shares, they've been rotational grazing since the 90s, so they've been in this for the long haul. Clearly, it's paid off. Well, it certainly looks like it, uh, not only rotationally grazing, um, you know, with uh, utilizing the cover crops uh, around him. Um, yeah, he's, he's done a great job, and Larry certainly has benefited from rotation, and that's allowed, allowed his land to rest at the appropriate time and then to recover. Yeah, and it was cool to hear his story about making that transition early on. 
Um, and interesting to hear his perspective when he didn't have... Yeah, he didn't really have any kind of um, resources. Very little was about... There was very little in the news or, or you know, yeah. in the printed media about rotational grazing. Yeah, and there's enough, uh, you know, social pressure on people today. I can't imagine yeah, it back yeah, in the 90s yeah. making changes like this. Yeah, so, I mean, even even today, uh, you know, he's surrounded by mainly row crop farming. And here he is with uh, native rangeland, which is pretty impressive. Pretty impressive. But like we say, it's working for him. He's been in it for 20 plus years now. At least, at least. All right, well, we'll get out of the way. I am Barrett Self. And I'm Buzz Clute. And uh, Barrett, do you remember those R's? I don't think I can remember them this time, Buzz. Oh, oh, come on, Barrett. I think it's rotate, rest, and I'm sure that it's recover. Indeed it is. Once again, you're listening to the Growing Resilience podcast series, sponsored by the USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service and produced by Soil Health Labs, based out of the Arnold School of Public Health at the University of South Carolina.